Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. On this week's episode, Abby and I talked to Aaron Good about the JFK, RFK, and MLK assassinations. Aaron Good is a political science PhD student and researcher at Temple University. His work focuses on U.S. hegemony and the American state. In 2015, his article, American Exception, Hegemony and the Dissimulation of the State, was published by the Journal Administration and Society. This was one of the first scholarly articles to explore the U.S. deep state in the context of America's drive for global dominance. Aaron also recently conducted a series of interviews with Daniel Ellsberg and Peter Dale Scott, portions of which will soon be airing on the Project Censored radio show. We decided to bring Aaron on the Media Roots radio podcast because of his expertise in SCADS, a.k.a. State Crimes Against Democracy, a term coined by writer Lance DeHaven Smith, whom Aaron has worked with closely. According to DeHaven Smith and many other historians, researchers, journalists, and even some politicians, the assassinations of John F. Kennedy Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King were all in some form or another a state crime against democracy. Before we start the interview, I just wanted to remind people that you can support us on patreon.com slash Radio for as little as $1 per episode. And I really hate promoting Apple or anything like that on this program, but please also go give us a good rating on iTunes and any other podcast platform that you listen to us on that you're able to give a rating on. And also, please go subscribe to our Media Roots YouTube channel and go check out some of our segments there. After a little musical break here, we return with our interview with Aaron Good about the RFK, JFK, and Martin Luther King assassinations. So this concept of state crimes against democracy, the national security state, what is SCADS, the acronym for state crimes against democracy, and why is SCADS important to understand for the context of the history of the U.S. empire? Right. Well, SCADS came about in the uh, maybe mid-2000s through the work of uh, a Florida State university professor named Lance DeHaven Smith, um, who was witnessing firsthand the way that George W. Bush had stolen the election in Florida. Um, He actually wrote the definitive account called The Battle for Florida on what happened in 2000. And in addition to the things that are more well-known, like the hanging chads and the uh, Supreme Court stepping in to stop the recount, Um, he found a lot of other details, like the fact that um, that a lot of the votes, enough votes to have swayed the election were actually over votes where people voted twice. And as a because of um, sort of a legacy of Jim Crow and other things where they would vote and they would write the person's name and also because they liked to um, disqualify black people's ballots. So they voted like that. And so really for a number of reasons, uh, Gore should have won that election. Uh, But on top of that, 
the governor Jeb Bush committed felonies, uh, including like um, mis- misuse of, of office uh, by telling all the lawyers that knew anything about election law that they couldn't work for Gore, and etc. And so um, he started he, to see crimes committed like this in broad daylight by the state, just uh, by power, you know, just sheer acts of power, made him go back and look at. Um, and you know the Iraq War, I think, contributed to this. Also, made him go back and look at what had been happening in American history and these things, because you know he was older and had lived through the '60s. Um, he, he looked at the political assassinations of the '60s and read more about them. And he had always just sort of thought that you know Oswald, Oswald must have done it, um, pertaining you know as far as the Kennedy assassination went. And then he went back and looked at all of them and found out that there was a whole literature on uh, the political assassinations of the 60s and that all of these uh, seem to point to the involvement of intelligence agencies. And then he even did more research into what the intelligence agencies were doing around the world and found that they were, you know, carrying out just those sort of crimes all over the place. So that led him to write about state crimes against democracy, saying that um, we have that it's powerful insiders who are able to manipulate the machinery of the state to commit crimes and conceal them from ever being, um, you know, reported or adjudicated. Uh, so it's, it's really like high criminality. Um, he defines them exactly as concerted actions or inactions by government insiders intended to manipulate democratic processes and undermine popular sovereignty. Um, and so that, that's where the term comes from, and there was a whole literature that he and a few other scholars started working on in, uh, you know, for maybe a 10-year period before Lance retired. And other things kind of happened with these scholars. Um, two of them died prematurely of heart attacks, and uh, another one of the main guys, um, just uh, named Matt Witt, he's still at Laverne College out in California. Um, but they haven't really been publishing. You know, Lance is retired, and so the, the group kind of... Uh, uh, faded away. I'm kind of the one guy. I'm working on a PhD dissertation, and I use a lot of their research. Um, but in a way, it's kind of uh, it's had its moment academically, and it doesn't seem like many people are looking into it right now or working to build on it, which is a shame. Aaron, that's so interesting that Lance Stephen Smith started that research based on the election. I had no idea that that's kind of what prompted that whole analysis. Let's talk about just the notion of the deep state being this kind of right wing term now and how, you know, historically it's always been a critique, kind of a left critique on state power. And why do you think that that's transformed now and how Trump's been able to hijack that term and make it partisan? And why is that so damaging before we start this deep dive into the assassinations? Right. Well, the the term the deep state grew out of um, Peter Dale Scott's work, which initially was uh, he, he initially started writing in the 70s about parapolitics, which is a practice in politics where accountability is uh, is, is diminished and obscured so that really writing about things like covert operations where these political actors can make things happen. But you don't know that they made them happen. You don't know how they made them happen. The, the, the true responsibility for events is obscured. And then he started looking at deep politics when he researched more about JFK and looked at the way that the mafia was not really, you know, for example, the the mafia was not something like separate from our normal political, uh, you know, economy in the United States. It was actually deeply intertwined with the institutions of state and uh, of the economy, for example, and also the power of groups like the military industrial complex and the, the power, the connections between uh, 
the intelligence services and uh, the corporate world, a lot of these things that exist in politics but are typically not talked about. That's deep politics. And then the idea of the deep state comes about really taken from Turkey, where you have like this, this constitution and a government, but behind the scenes there are coups that come up that, that take place where the government gets overthrown and changed. There was false flag terror that was done, especially to um, you know give the state more power and delegitimize left wing movements. So that that term, the the Turkish word for it is like Devlin Devit or something like that. It's a Turkish word, and uh, that is where the deep state came from. And then people, Peter started to Peter Dale Scott started to apply that to the American state, and. Um, he he said he didn't want to say that the U.S. had a deep state for a long time, but he starts to come to that conclusion uh, when he's doing work on 9-11 that there is sort of a continuous um, strain in politics and in our political system that suggests that there is that, that we could think of a deep state as being uh, you know a key part of the American uh, system of, of government and of American society. And I've taken that... And, uh, you know, he's, he's started to think along similar lines, also thinking that really you never had a time when there wasn't a, uh, you know, a deep politics of the United States and something, you know, power would be exerted in ways that we think of in, in undemocratic ways in the United States. So my work has been to, and my dissertation deals with this as well as this article that I had published in. Um, administration and society a few years ago, 2015, called American Exception, um, that you, the state in America is really, you can think of it as like three overlapping states, the security state, the national security state, the democratic state, which is the one that we're taught about in school, which is the nice one where people vote in elections and our leaders have to do a good job or they won't get reelected and we have free speech and transparency. Um, and then the national security state, which we know about, well, there's state secrecy, but of course they have to keep these secrets because they're protecting us from communists, et cetera, terrorists and everything else. Now Russia again. And so there, that's the, the national security state. But the deep state is more this like kind of, it, it's sort of like a Venn diagram in a way. That's how I conceptualize it, where the, the corporate world has uh, exerts tremendous influence and is infiltrated with or or is a, it becomes integrated with people in the public state and people in the national security state. And this really takes on, uh, you know, a tremendous significance after World War II with the creation of the CIA and the modern national security state. The CIA from its inception was the brainchild of Wall Street and the people that had it, you know, that, that lobbied the president to create that and Congress to create it were Wall Street people from like Sullivan and Cromwell, you know, Wall Street law firm, Dylan Reed, another illustrious uh, Wall Street law firm. And it was really supposed to solve the problem of intelligence gathering um, in the United States for the president in that the president had intelligence coming at him from all directions, the military, the State Department, uh, the different branches of the military and so on. And so they were going to have one place, one central intelligence agency that would centralize this. And then they write in when they put when they pin the act that actually brings the CIA into existence. There's a little paragraph written by Clark Clifford, who would later become kind of infamous for his role in BCCI, 
uh, but he was also a Secretary of Defense under um, under LBJ. But he wrote that the CIA would also perform such other functions and duties related to intelligence affecting the national security as the National Security Council may from time to time direct. <laughs> so this is just a and, couple and other this, couple other acts. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry about it. I mean, <laughs> right. And I don't think anybody had, knew that that would mean, you know, mind control experiments on unwitting subjects, uh, political assassinations, creating all sorts of drugs to be able to, like, you know, murder people in a clandestine fashion, overthrowing governments, you know, all the, all the things that we uh, know about the CIA doing. And who knows what we don't know about them doing. So, yeah, that, it's that... That and that being really created by these Wall Street guys and under a cloak of state secrecy gives you an idea of the power uh, that this national security state has. And, you know, w- when you think that it often acts at the behest of, of economic interests, economic elites, then it really is, you know, it, it's a deep state. Isn't it interesting, though, that we never had proper analysis or mainstream discussions about what you're talking about, Aaron, and instead it skipped that completely and immediately just became a partisan thing and kind of this cartoonish thing in the Trump camp. Right. It was on the fringes. The number of people that did analysis in this vein, especially like when you look at the Kennedy assassination and the political assassinations of the 60s, like Philip Mullinson this, uh, he, he died a few, you know, maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but he wrote stuff in the 90s about, in the 80s and 90s about RFK assassination, MLK assassination. And, uh, but this, the, it's really so few academics that, that looked at it when really if we have like a free society and we're really supposed to be allowing any sort of plausible, you know, ac- uh, academic ideas to be given a fair hearing, like somebody should have been thinking like, well, in the, on the, it, if if Lee Harvey Oswald didn't really act alone, what are the what are the implications of that for our democracy and for our society? Uh, you know, using that as an example, and they really didn't. And some, you know, a few like Peter Dale Scott was an English professor, and he was an, a Canadian diplomat also. Um, well, he's really a poet, but he he's also a brilliant historian. So he did these things. Lance had tenure and had already had a great career. I mean, he's published like 14 books in academic presses um, throughout his career, and most of those are not on these subjects. And he just, you know, when you have tenured intellectuals, they can do, they really can write whatever they want. Most of them never choose to write anything controversial because, you know, there's not incentive to do so, and they they don't think that way by the time they get to that point, I think. Oh yeah, and then and then all this. So as soon as you get a little bit of discussion about it, with like um, there's a Bill Moyer show on the deep state where this guy named this former insider named Mike Lofgren, he wrote a book called The Deep State, and you know he actually says, yeah, the beneficiary of all this is Wall Street, and you know they created this national security state and they're calling the shots. So there's interesting analysis there, and that was written in maybe 2015. He started writing about these things, but then the Alex Jones. And Trump sort of nexus of uh, kind of, I don't know what else, it's like a nexus of paranoid nonsense in in ways because the deep state isn't coherent as a, it doesn't have any sort of thing that you, anything that you could define it as, as being. It's not, it's not, they don't operate according to any logic really. They're just sort of like people within the government that don't, that oppose Trump because Trump wants to make America great again. (laughs) 
and they don't want that to happen because they're bad. Or they're, or or even like the idea that they're like a liberal group of people. You will sometimes hear it. Well, that's what you hear now. I mean, that's the narrative now is that the deep state is defined largely by the the right wing, Trump supporting base as Rosenstein, McCabe, John Brennan, and Comey, and that's (laughs) sort of how it's portrayed. Like there, you know, you hear Sean Hannity, and even Tucker Carlson now saying that those those are the people who are the deep state. Yeah, Elliot Abrams is not the deep state. John, um, you know, John Bolton is not the deep state. It's really interesting. And, that there, and there are people who who write about, like Jefferson Morley wrote at um, Washington Post, and and he did work on the Kennedy assassination. And he has this blog called, I think it's just called Deep State Blog that he just started recently. He's trying to write about these things. The guy that you just interviewed at um, John Schwartz, right? Yeah. Um, he's he's written about the deep state and you know he's even i mean i think he's read his peter dale scott to be honest because i've read him talking about the safari club and other things that peter dale scott really brought wrote about more than other people so i mean he's he doesn't write as you know he's not doesn't put it all out there as much as like peter dale scott does but i think he's read his peter dale scott so there are people that are trying to write about intelligence matters but it's compared to the publicity generated by trump and the damage really done by trump um it's it's a drop in the bucket. And uh, if, if we don't, I fear that if we don't really recognize these undemocratic forces and give it a name and, you know, try to address them, then it's, it's, you're really giving them a lot of cover to continue operating the way that they have been. And Trump in a way has, is, I mean, Peter, Peter Del Scott's mentioned that he, he wonders at times if, if that's part of like what, you know, if that's part of Trump's purpose is to, like somehow re reestablish the legitimacy of the security services or something like that, or at least reify them in some way because he's, I mean, and I have I don't I have no idea whether that's even plausible, but he's having that effect. Like you have people like Spike Lee saying like, "Come on, you know, save Cheering us." Cheering uh, for Mueller, yeah, yeah, save us, Mueller. <laughs> right, and like, do they like does the FBI like this? They killed all those Black Panthers and everything else. Like this, I mean, I know. We have to assume Spike Lee knows this. So what? What is the? What is going on here? Well, it seems like there's a redirection um, from Trump to I don't know to make people believe that, like Robbie said, those people are the deep state, and it is partisan, and it's a juvenile depiction of what the deep state really is. So yeah, I mean that, that's exactly what he is doing. He's well, giving them a you know, great it's gift. Similar to like you know, like take Alex Jones and his buffoonery for like many many years, where he would he would talk about things like the Kennedy assassination or uh, you know anthrax attacks or nine eleven or something like that. He kind of taints everything, you know. <laughs> like the taint of his like buffoonery is uh, is is damaging, and so you know Trump seems to be having that that kind of effect also. Yeah, on a side note, Alex Jones is now publishing articles to run cover for John Bolton and Elliot Abrams. Very fascinating. Yeah, because he used to be really, I mean, he never explained much about the neocons, but we knew he didn't like them before. Well, yeah, it turns out, I mean, the person who did most of the anti-neocon writings for InfoWars was Kurt Nemo the whole time anyway. So it wasn't even really, in terms of Alex Jones' actual contribution to the world of neocon analysis, uh, he personally didn't do very much. So, <laughs> right. Um, I can believe that. Let's move on to um, 
the the most famous example of SCADs, State Crimes Against Democracy, um, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which occurred on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three in Dallas, in broad daylight. Most people, I think, most people who've even remotely looked at this, can at least agree that the Warren Commission appears to be some kind of cover up, um, and. You know, I think you were even the one who told me, Aaron, that polling suggests that something only like below 20% of the population thinks Oswald acted alone. Is that, am I getting that correct? Well, it, it's always been under 50%, but at, it, it, its low point was after the Watergate hearings where it, the, the shenanigans of the intelligence agencies were for the first time brought to the public. And there was one poll that had belief in the Oswald lone nut theory at 11%. Wow. So in 1976, 11% of the public believed it. And we know that elites never believed it either. Like LBJ suspected the CIA was involved. Robbie, Robert Kennedy thought that it was the CIA, you know, the national security state in conjunction with those Cuban exiles and the mafia. Um, you know, Jackie Kennedy didn't believe that, and she. But yet they didn't. Often they did. They wouldn't say anything in public. Nixon didn't believe it. Um, well, let's go into some of that. I mean, because there seems to be a lot of information out there, as you said, that Robert F. Kennedy, uh, JFK's brother, did not believe the Warren Commission report, but yet he didn't really, from my understanding, speak publicly about it. I mean, can you go into that and why why did RFK never really speak publicly about this? Well, he did not think it was politically expedient to do so or that it would be likely to have a good outcome. I think that's why this was often used by defenders of the of the Warren report to say like, well, his brother is the law, top lawman in the country and he doesn't say anything about it. So then, you know, it, why would that be? It must be that there's nothing to any of these conspiracy theories, but as soon as he found out, he was um, he was somewhat grief stricken. I mean, he was obviously going to be grief stricken uh, because of his his brother had just been killed. But he 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 w- also took steps to figure out what was what had happened. He he called people. He was the head of uh, you know he had the Justice Department to command, and he looked into Ruby. And he found that Ruby had been making a lot of calls to the same people that they'd been investigating for, you know, all of his investigations in organized crime. And um, so he knew that something was up with that whole scenario. Um, he told his confidants that, well, well first, they, they, they contacted the Soviet Union through a, uh, an emissary named William Walton. And this was Jackie. He carried a message from Jackie and Bobby both. And the message was that, they knew that the Soviets weren't behind what happened in Dallas and uh, that the quest for peace that JFK had been on, because JFK had been trying to like end the Cold War, essentially, um, that that would have to wait until Bobby got back into the White House, basically. And just for some context here, the, at the time that this memo was sent by them, the public tide was sort of trying to make it seem like Oswald was some kind of KGB assassin. Well, they sort of squashed that, and that becomes the main mission of the Warren Commission. So the first reports are connecting him to Cuba and to Cuban communism, and, and there are also reports coming out of Mexico City uh, that, the, that they don't become public, but they're, coming, they're getting to the White House, that he had met with 
the head of the assassinations unit of the KGB uh, for the Western Hemisphere, this guy named Kostikov. And it, it later turns out that that's really not likely the case, but it was fabricated. But that was – and the information of this had been kept from the, the proper authorities because really if that had gone – where it was supposed to, it would have kept Oswald under total surveillance in Dallas. But, you know, different things like different dogs don't bark in this in this case. Um, so initially, they there's something he because he defected to Russia. Um, it looks, you know, he looks like a communist, and that's what's told to people like Earl Warren. I mean, Earl Warren specifically was told that, hey, you know, I know you don't want to be a part of this commission, but if you don't. You know, we could have a nuclear war that would kill, you know, hundreds of millions of people in a few hours. And uh, according to LBJ, he was Earl Warren was in tears after this. Um, I mean, he said he started he actually said he started crying and said, well, I won't turn you down. I'll just do whatever you say. And so Earl Warren put his stamp on that commission, even though. It was really uh, probably better named the Dulles Commission because Alan Dulles was the most active member, uh, you know, the former CIA director. And that was the former CIA director that John F. Kennedy personally fired. Yeah, he he not only fired him, but he was so unhappy with with Dulles and, you know, probably with the legacy of Dulles' brother, who'd been the secretary of state under Eisenhower also – um, he had Robert go and look through the rest of the federal government and find out if there were any other Dulleses and fire them too. And uh, he did find one working in the State Department, like a uh, a cousin, a woman, and uh, Robert fired her just for being a Dulles, basically. Aaron, we tend to hear about these events in a way that they're debunked, right? So in, in mainstream discourse, we hear about the Kennedy assassination as just a, a lunatic conspiracy theory. And of course, no one really believes that um, no credence is given to the people who were closest to Kennedy. Uh, Jackie Onassis, um, other family members, other colleagues who perhaps do believe that there was a cover-up uh, in the government. I mean, can you speak on that? Right. Well, Jackie never said anything publicly, but she did, you know, through that message, say to the Russians, it was a right wing conspiracy. When she was at the funeral for JFK, she spoke to the Russian emissary and said, my husband's dead. Peace is up to you. Um, and, and yet, as you say, she doesn't she didn't say anything. People don't really try to they didn't. It was for it took decades to come out that Robert Kennedy was against it. I think that among these insiders, you know, the, the weight of what they would really be, you know, saying, I mean, once the, the whole establishment media and the political establishment rushes to cover it up the way that they did, I think it was clear to, um, to Robert and to Jackie that the American, you know, power structure was in favor of this and that they would be taking on, you know, the most powerful elements in society if they if they publicly tried to do something about it. And there's not, you know, there's no reason to think that they would have succeeded. If you look at the MLK case, the family actually did try to pursue justice for a long time. And they didn't, they didn't get, uh, you know, uh, they got, they won a verdict in a civil court. They went to the Bill Clinton White House and said, please reinvestigate this. And nothing came of it. Uh, when George Wallace was shot in 1972, he always believed that it was the Nixon people that were behind it. And there's reason to like think that that's a really suspicious case and that people may have been involved, like even E. Howard Hunt seems to have connections to the shooter. Um, but George Wallace would never say it publicly. 
that that's what he thought because something about being, you know, uh, one of these elites and being part of the establishment, you just don't do things that would uh, call into question the legitimacy of the establishment. Or like Arthur Schlesinger, the historian, he he believed that it was a conspiracy by, you know, uh, that's what David Talbot's concluded anyway, but he never would say anything because he wanted to be part of the Washington scene, um, for, you know, which he was, but not that he had any power or anything like that. He just wanted, he didn't want to give up his insider privilege. And uh, so he didn't, he, he wouldn't speak publicly about these things, but he did write a good review of, um, you know, the book on Vietnam that John Newman wrote. And, you know, he did wrote a, fairly positive review of Nixon's JFK, but he would, wouldn't say much more than that. Well, a lot of the things about JFK now are completely decontextualized. And again, these tropes and kind of right-wing conspiracy lore, you know, wanting to abolish the CIA and, you know, into a thousand pieces or whatever, that weird speech that's taken out of context where he's saying, you know, hinting to like a, an elite cabal that people right. always point to and say, oh, this is why he was killed. Um, but, I mean, is there any speculation on motives here? Because it seems like there's other ways that you could have taken down a president, and it doesn't seem like he was really standing against anything in such an extreme way that they would want to actually execute him. I don't know. Well, he, yeah, he, I mean, what you're, the quotes that you mentioned are funny because there's so many of them that go around. Like, you don't, if, unless you spend a bunch of time trying to look into it, you won't know which are real. There's one that says, like, I know about a conspiracy <laughs> to enslave everybody. You see that all the time. <laughs> and I, that, one does, that one is not real. But the one about, I want to smash the CIA into a thousand right. pieces, that is, that is real. He did say that. That was after the Bay of Pigs. That was very early in his presidency. And he realized that he had been screwed, that they had led him to launch an operation that was destined to fail in order to pressure him to invade Cuba. And they knew that it would fail. They knew there would be no popular uprising. And in response to this, he fires Dulles and he fires Cabell and um, he fires Bissell. Um, one of those guys, I think it's Cabell. His brother was the mayor of Dallas and a CIA asset whenever Kennedy got killed there later for what that's worth. But oh. there was, so what really happens is I think that it comes down to foreign policy that in that JFK, he refused time and again to start wars despite immense pressure. They wanted him to go to war in Laos in the very beginning of his president or early in his presidency. They wanted him to go to war in Berlin over uh, the standoff around Berlin that eventually gets resolved when the Berlin Wall goes up. They wanted him to introduce ground troops to Vietnam and he wouldn't do that. And, and in Cuban, the Cuban Missile Crisis, they wanted him to go to war, and he wouldn't go to war there either. They all, the entire Joint, Chief, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff were for invading the island, and only Kennedy and then his loyal you know, subordinates, which were his brother and Robert McNamara, worked to keep that from happening. And they had nukes on the island. Like We didn't know that at the time, but they did. If, if, if Kennedy had followed the advice of just about all of his advisors, there would have been nuclear war. You could have had nuclear winter. It, we could be not having this conversation right now. Um, and But that really – so he avoided nuclear war, but he just pissed them off even more. And um, he he gave the peace speech you know, a few months before he died at American University where he talked about actually ending the Cold War. He said we need to reexamine our attitude towards the Soviet Union the public was on his side on this issue. The public was scared about nuclear war. They didn't, you know, they didn't want to play nuclear chicken. 
with the Soviet Union to rule the world, like you know, that kind of a gamble might be worth it if you're the richest, most powerful people in the in the world, and so you would be willing to risk, you know, annihilation because you're in this super privileged position. But for the American public, they didn't like this. They didn't want to be, you know, hostages in this game of chicken by these two superpowers. So the public was on Kennedy's side. In the third world, Kennedy's policies were very different, and they get reversed by Johnson right away. Uh, in Indonesia, uh, Kennedy was friendly with Sukarno. Um, LBJ reverses that policy, and it's a massacre. Like 500,000 to 2 million Indonesians are basically tortured to death to put Sukarno in charge. And to this day, it's kind of a, a neo-colony of the West. The biggest gold mine in the world is the Freeport Mine in Indonesia with $100 billion of gold still in it, even though they've been mining it for decades. Um, I mean, it's all those resources went to, you know, the Western corporations by and large. Brazil, there was a coup right after Kennedy gets killed, reversing his policy. Um, reversing his policy in Vietnam. Um, Kennedy, I mean, based on my reading, it seems pretty clear that Kennedy was trying to get out of Vietnam, but he was doing it in a dishonest way basically he was trying to conceal what he was doing until after the election um and there's a lot of reason to believe that was the case so there's a there's a there's a lot of motivation in fact so much motive that really it's it's kind of when you're trying to say what was the motive it was really overdetermined in uh social science speak meaning that there were so many factors that they you know uh went into it um that it, it, it's you couldn't even really pick one. It was just in general. I mean, threatening to end the Cold War was the military budgets, but also the free reign it gave to the CIA to act on behalf of corporate interests all over the world. Um, I mean, it's like with Project for a New American Century and the new Pearl Harbor that they called for. Imagine like taking away their Pearl Harbor, taking away the Cold War was 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 like that. If you the, the situation created by the Cold War allowed the U.S. to do everything to go out and get whatever resources and, uh, you know, profit centers that they wanted all in the guise of protecting freedom. And so, you know, what he was trying to do was just un unacceptable. So at one time, uh, Jim Garrison, who was famously portrayed by Kevin Costner in the Oliver Stone film JFK, apparently tried to plead with Robert F. Kennedy to talk about reinvestigating his brother's death. Can you explain when that meeting happened and why? And again, that was something that appears to be not really like made public until right. later. So what, what was their discussion and, and what there was some kind of eerie foreboding that, that Garrison spoke about as well. Can you go into right. That? Well, as I recall, this is in David Talbot's book brothers where they, where he, he talks about Garrison and it, it was, it was, a friend of Bobby Kennedy that Bobby Kennedy had sent to talk to them. And Garrison tells him that, you know, this is around the time Bobby's contemplating a run for president, I believe, and, or, or shortly before. And, and Garrison says that you should pass this message on to Bobby, that he should announce that he's coming after, uh, you know, the people that killed his brother and do it in a public way in order to be safer, that it, that it would make him more difficult to assassinate him if he did that. Um, and Bobby did not do that, and uh, Garrison was quite worried about this. Um, and when Bobby's running for president, that's why the investigation is still going on, and uh, the trial is 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 coming up at that at that point. Um, 
you know, I think the trial takes place in 69 and Kennedy gets, Robert Kennedy gets assassinated in 68. But um, Larry King, who was a younger, obviously a younger man back then, he was working for someone else who wanted to help fund Garrison's campaign. There's a whole backstory there that you can find, but he ended up going to New Orleans and meeting with Garrison. And so he spent a little bit of time getting to know Garrison and what he was trying to do there. And he was, he was pretty impressed about Garrison. He'll say that today, uh, impressed with Garrison's um, you know, efforts. But he said when, when Garrison, he dropped Garrison off at the airport and Garrison gets out of the car. And the last thing he says to him, this was in the summer, the late spring, early summer of uh, 1968. He says, they're going to kill Robert Kennedy. And that's the last thing that he says before he leaves. And then, you know, like very shortly afterwards, that's exactly what happens. Robert Kennedy gets killed. And um, he had made it known to his confidence, confidants that he was going to reinvestigate the assassination if he became president. And um, he even said so at one campaign stop because people would ask him this all the time and he would be sort of pained about the whole thing and he didn't want to say much publicly. But at one point uh, on the campaign, close to the end, somebody asked him if he would reinvestigate his brother's assassination. And he just he just said yes, and then he went on to give his standard speech that he gave. Yeah, it's so it's it's kind of actually kind of chilling to think that he privately thought a lot of this stuff, and you know kept so quiet about it. Um, you know who knows if it would have saved his life if he actually you know spoke loudly about it you know i I, one other interesting example of of the sort of disconnect between the way the public perceives these quote-unquote conspiracies now versus as you said actual public elites believing them privately and one of the more interesting examples of that came out of again oliver stone's film nixon it was where i first learned about it that he portrayed nixon in it as understanding that the national security state had something to do with JFK's murder and he would refer to it as that whole Bay of Pigs thing or the Bay of Pigs thing. And apparently that's actually been, that's not just something Oliver Stone, you know, pulled out of his ass for the movie. That's actually something that's been backed up through tape recordings and other things. Can you give some context to that and and why that's actually um, backed up by the historical record? Right. Well, so Richard Nixon was dealing with, this, these Washington Post stories about Watergate, and he wanted to make them go away. And a lot of times when you get into things involving these actors, you know, and these guys who were the burglars were former CIA guys, a lot of them, like especially E. Howard Hunt and James McCord. And so he figured, well, why don't they just covering this up? Especially the Washington Post is known as one of those very CIA-friendly uh, newspapers, maybe the most CIA-friendly newspaper in all of Washington. And so Nixon sent his aide, um, Halderman, H.R. Halderman, down to talk to Richard Helms. And he, he gave Halderman instructions to say, look, tell, Hall, tell uh, Helms to get the papers to stop writing about this. Tell him that if they keep writing about this, uh, it's going to open up the whole Bay of Pigs thing. So Halderman went and he delivered the message to Richard Helms, the director of the CIA. And this pissed Helms off. A lot, and he pounded the desk and said, "Tell him that this has nothing to do with the Bay of Pigs." And uh, but for whatever he whatever he said about it, um, it seemed to help because after that, um, Helms started cooperating, and they were he, he tried to you know deal with the damage do damage control for Nixon on the basis of national security, saying, "Well, these are national these are related to national security issues." 
Um, so is this, it came out later in Haldeman's, and this part of this is discussed in the Nixon tapes. So you can hear them in the Watergate tapes that they talk about the Bay of Pigs thing. But in Haldeman's memoir, which was written years after Watergate, he says that exactly what you said, that this was the Bay of Pigs thing was code for the Kennedy assassination. Uh, and that's what Nixon would say when he was um, referring to it, sort of implying that 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 Kennedy having pissed off the CIA so much over the Bay of Pigs that that had something to do with his assassination or that it was related to his assassination. So what it looks like happened is that Nixon was essentially blackmailing the CIA saying, hey, you know, if you don't want the Kennedy assassination to, uh, you know, be brought back to light, you need to play ball here. And he did other things like that. The whole the reason that we have the CIA's family jewels is because Nixon felt like the CIA was screwing him on Watergate. And so he fires Helms later and he hires this guy named Schlesinger and he says, you go dig up every piece of dirt you can find in the CIA and get him in a file. So I'll have some things to hold over the CIA. Now, in theory, the CIA works for the president, right? But, you know, obviously this is like a good example for the existence or a good argument for the existence of the deep state that Nixon is taking an agency that's supposed to help him and he's thinking god how can i get dirt on these guys so that they like actually you know try not to like end my presidency or contribute to it and he does that's where the family jewels came from that um you know eventually get declassified a lot of them but i think some of them still are unclassified they've never released a fully redacted version of the family jewels Let's talk about Robert Kennedy Jr. now, since he's made the controversial move recently of meeting with his father's alleged murderer, Sirhan Sirhan, in prison. Uh, Surprisingly, outlets like the Washington Post covered this. I remember reading it at the time, giving it a fair shake, and RFK Jr.'s statements about it. Um, And he actually believes that Sirhan Sirhan was not solely responsible, or maybe not at all, involved in his father's assassination. Using this as a starting point, can you give us the backstory to what led up to that assassination and also just like the time frame between RFK and JFK's assassination? Right. Well, Kennedy gets assassinated in November of uh, 63. RFK resigns during uh, for LBJ's second term as attorney general, and he runs to be a senator in New York. Uh, I believe in 64 he gets elected. I don't think it's 66. I think it's 64. And so he wor- he's a senator in New York, and he campaigns um, on this anti-poverty platform. And eventually he turns against the Vietnam War, and he is persuaded to enter the race after um, Johnson's poor performances early on. So Johnson has struggles against McCarthy, decides to drop out, and then RFK enters the race. Now, at the same time, you have Martin Luther King, who is come out against the Vietnam War. And he's, so he's not just speaking about, you know, um, civil rights. He, he's talking, he's linking everything together, the great evils of the American empire, militarism, racism, and economic exploitation or poverty. And so in 1968, you have, it's, it's famous for being this summer of protests all over the world, like Mexico City, Paris, all these places where you have these movements against the establishment. And the establishment, I think, was really terrified in, in the summer of 68. Um, Louis Latham, who used to be the editor of Harper's, and his brother was a, a, an oil, he came from an oil family, and I think his brother worked for the CIA. But Latham described being at the Bohemian Grove in 1968 and 
that in among the people that were there, you know, all of these like, uh, you know, political economic elites, they're all hanging out at the Bohemian Grove doing whatever weird stuff they do, but that normally, but in 68, there was just this sort of mood of terror and fear about all of these social forces that were kind of mobilizing against the status quo. And, you know, I think that's probably related to what happens in 1968. You have MLK announces he wants this poor people's campaign and his plan is to do what the bonus army did to go out to Washington and camp out there until they stop spending billions on the war and start spending money to help poor people at home. And it was not for black. It wasn't poor black people. It was all poor people, poor white people, poor Hispanic people, poor uh, black people as well. So any poor people and his family, King's family thinks that that's why he was murdered, that that campaign was a real threat. And one day King gets a call from Robert Kennedy and Robert Kennedy says, you know, go do it, go camp out in Washington so at that point, you know, in the early months of 1968, you've got a guy running for president who really represents the most progressive uh, part of the establishment, you know, because the Kennedys are obviously part of the establishment. And you have a social movement that's mobilized behind a leader, Martin Luther King. And, you know, if you had these sort of radical parts of society and the people who with the machinery of the state on the same page, well, you could have you really had a, a, a shift in American politics. But in April, on April 4th, Martin Luther King gets assassinated. And then a couple of months later, uh, almost two months exactly, um, uh, RFK gets assassinated. And that assassination is very, uh, well, both of them are, you know, have been, in neither case did the assassin say, oh yeah, I did it. And for this reason, like uh, in the in the King case, the assassin, the alleged assassin, who was convicted um, because he said he would, he was told he'd be given the death penalty if he didn't. Um, he later says, I didn't do it, and they've never really had a good motive for why he would have done it. Um, and then in the case of RFK, Sirhan Sirhan has always said he doesn't remember doing it, um, even though there's lots of witnesses that, show him shoot, that had him shooting you know, at Kennedy. But the thing about the Robert Kennedy assassination is that the autopsy, in conjunction with the eyewitnesses, basically exonerates Sirhan uh, from being the killer because the shot that killed Robert Kennedy was fired at just about point-blank range in the back of his head. And all the witnesses have um, Sirhan Sirhan like six feet you know, in front of him. And so it, it doesn't appear that um, Sirhan could have really done that. Um, it appear, what it appears what happened is he... Stands there, starts shouts something, starts shooting, and then someone standing behind Kennedy shoots him in the back of the head. And so, other than the, the idea that the actual fatal headshot was done by someone else, what are some other key facts that you think are important that dispute what we understand is the official narrative? And and additionally, is there someone who has been accused of, or researchers or investigative reporters have? determined might have been that person who shot Robert F. Kennedy in the in the head? Yeah, the, people have looked into this for a long time. So the first books start coming out in the 1970s. Um, there's a lot of weird evidence in this case. For example, there's too many bullet holes. They find more bullet holes than Sirhan's gun held. So that, that suggests, you know, more shooters, one uh, additional shooters, at least one additional shooter, maybe more. And there's been like forensic um, investigators who have actually like looked at this, right? It's not just 
journalists. Right. Yeah. Right. There's, there's, I mean, there's photographs of what appear to be bullet holes, and they took these, and there's, they saved the door frames and the ceiling tiles, and they're supposed to keep these as evidence, but they ended up uh, losing them. There's actually a recurring pattern in all of these cases of evidence missing, like, you know, John Kennedy's brain is missing. They lost it, um, which could show, you know, which direction bullets came from, for example. You have autopsy photographs of John Kennedy where the guy who supposedly took them categorically denies having taken them, saying, like, I never used that kind of uh, photography paper and I don't remember taking <laughs> these at all. You have the bullet that was taken from RFK's neck that vanishes. Um, there was a, a young boy who took, who started taking pictures right when the shooting happened at the ambassador hotel, when, Ken, when RFK was killed, he stands up on a table and starts taking pictures. Well, the police take his camera. He never gets those pictures back. He takes them to court. He wins a lawsuit and, th and they agree that they're supposed to pay him damages and give him the photographs. And then when the photographs are to be returned to them, the police claim that they stopped somewhere and that the, the photographs got stolen. Wow. And, and there's actual video recordings of before and after the assassination, right? Like, well, there's actually, yeah, for the RFK case, there's audio recording that surfaced in recent years and they were taken to an acoustic anal an analyst. I think his name is like Philip Von Prague and he shows what should be like 11 shots or something like that. So this got written up in CNN um, a few years ago. You can, you know, Google CNN RFK acoustic analysis or something, and you can find those stories. Um, so there was, you know, there's a, there's a lot of evidence. They've tried and tried to get Sirhan an appeal, and uh, they, the most recent attempt had you had people like even RFK Jr. saying, please, you know, give him uh, his parole or give him another hearing. And I believe the last person to have the authority to uh, be able to do so ignored all of the evidence that, that Sirhan's side had mustered and uh, refused to grant, you know, another hearing, saying that, well, even if Sirhan didn't shoot the actual shot that killed him, he was, he was involved, so he couldn't be exonerated. And that person was uh, Kamala Harris. Oh, and, fascinating. Um, she goes on to be a senator, and she goes on to sit on the Intelligence Committee. So, uh, you know... Uh, I guess she did her know, duty to, to get in there. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you, I don't know if it's exactly like tit for tat or quid pro quo, quid pro quo, but you know, it seems really, there's a certain symmetry there. Um, well, and, there's also you know, a similar, so not, there's also a similar figure who came, comes out and during the MLK case that we'll talk about in a little bit, um, who's not a, not a politician, but he's a, he's a journalist, um, named Gerald Posner. Um, I don't know if you know anything about him, but um Oh yeah, yeah. He's the guy that wrote well he he's sort of um he seems like the CIA's uh little scribe or something. He wrote a he wrote a book sort of responding to Ar Oliver Stone's movie, and then he also wrote a book about uh the MLK assassination as well. So he Yeah. He he defends official stories. He's been discredited in recent years as a plagiarist. Um so. Oh, that's shocking. Um yeah, there's a lot of interesting players who have been involved. And in, I mean, even Philip Zelikow, which, who you're probably aware of, was, you know, responsible for manipulating the JFK tapes uh, that happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis to make JFK appear more hawkish. Um, oh, right. Yeah, he did those um, with like Ernest May. He co-authored the book on the, the Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. tapes and he, he edited them in badly, so much so that 
one of the people who worked at the Kennedy Library like you know wrote a, a review saying how bad it was. Yeah, I mean purposeful manipulation of the historical record. I mean it's it was interesting how many of these people crop up throughout these different things. Um, and of course, you know Philip Zelikow infamously was in charge of the 9/11 Commission and wrote the conclusions to it before the commission even started. So yeah, didn't didn't staff members make like a satirical outline of that where they actually compare it to the Warren Commission and the Magic Bullet and other other things like that? I seem to recall a story like that. That sounds familiar, but I don't know the details of that. But in in regards to Sirhan Sirhan, I mean, just go into a little bit who he was. What was his country of origin? There was something about him being in the just released from the hospital previously to this assassination, and then. Also, this idea of how valid is it? Because it seems like the prevailing narrative that kind of took up the most space in sort of these conspiracy, you know, narratives or writings is that he was some kind of Manchurian candidate who was brainwashed um, to be right. an assassin. Yeah, well, Sirhan is a very interesting, tragic figure. He, he was Palestinian and had came come over, um, I think, fa- yeah, a few years prior to this. And um, he, he didn't have a great job, but he had, among other things he did, he rode horses for uh, a living on this, at this ranch. And at some point he has a fall from a horse, and which really should have been like a visit to the hospital, and then that was it. It wasn't that serious. But um, when they've looked into his records, and he's gone for like a, you know, a, a fairly long time and there's not documentation saying exactly where he is. So he seems to have fallen off the the grid and his family can't account for it either when they've been asked about it. Um, And so people have always tried to figure out what his role was because he's in a really weird state after the assassination and uh, the way he responds to questioning is very strange. He won't give his name up and, but he doesn't, he doesn't seem to even know what he's being charged with and et cetera. Um, and so what a lot of people that have looked into it have concluded is that he seems to have been like hypnotized to try to just pull out a gun and shoot at Robert Kennedy. And this is probably the, I won't say probably, it is the most problematic part of the whole case is that they, you know, it sounds too strange to be true uh, to somebody who's just hearing about this, but you know, the CIA did carry on these projects like these mind control projects uh there was the project artichoke which was done to try to create mind control assassins there's documentation of a cia officer who hypnoprogrammed his secretary basically hypnotized her into picking up a gun it wasn't loaded but she didn't know that picking up a gun and shooting her colleague you know which doesn't shoot them because it's not loaded but she just she picks up the gun and actually tries to kill her so that was what this CIA officer had done, um, I guess, probably without the consent of this person, just like, you know, hypnotized her and done this. So they, they did put energy into doing this. Um, it looks like uh, it, the, what makes sense in terms of in being in accordance with the evidence is that Sirhan was hypnotized more to be like a distraction while somebody else fired the shots. Lisa Pease, who's written the best book on this subject, it just came out recently, um, called A Lie Too Big to Fail. And she believes that he was probably firing blanks and that there were other shooters. Um, you know, I really, in terms of getting at, getting into all the details on these forensic issues, like I'm not an expert on that, but 
at any rate, Sirhan seems to have been programmed one way or the other, whether he was shooting real bullets or not. When people went back to hypnotize him, they found him extremely easy to hypnotize. There's a guy named Dan Brown who was a Harvard psychologist and an expert on hypnosis, and he fa- he's testified on behalf of Sirhan and you know been interviewed for these different documentaries talking about it that people tried to make to look into the case. And he says Sirhan's extremely easy to um, hypnotize, and, and you you can send him under um, you know very easily, and he you can get him to do whatever. Um, years ago, they hypnotized him, and they tell him to start, you know, acting like a monkey. And so he turns around and starts, like, trying to climb up the bars of his cage. Um, it, so the f- numerous people who've examined Sirhan say he seems really easy to hypnotize. Um, and so that's the angle of the case that, you know, is a bit divisive because it seems so crazy. But, you know, the other alternative is that he was in on some sort of plot and that other people shot him. Now, the the people that the the Washington Post and Lisa Pease, they were well, the Washington Post wrote a review of Lisa's book, and Lisa fingers Mayhew as the guy who was likely uh, who's a likely suspect in the case. Walter or um, what was it? Robert Mayhew. Robert Mayhew was really yeah. like the he was like a bag man for Howard Hughes, and he did jobs for the CIA. He's the guy that inspired Mission Impossible. Um, you know, because if you watch Mission Impossible, they're doing things that are like too, too sensitive for the other agencies. You know, and it's always, you know, something kind of cool or or involving high technology in the films and the TV show. But like in real life, it was just something that was so gangsterish that the CIA would prefer to like outsource it in a way. So, like for example, he was the person who approached the mafia in order to try to get the mafia involved in the assassination plots against Castro. And the guy that the guy that was behind, standing behind Robert Kennedy, and who was holding Kennedy's tie when Kennedy fell down, was a guy named Thane Eugene Caesar, and he was a security guard for Ace Security, which I believe was like a Mayhew company, and and somehow affiliated with Lockheed Martin as well, you know, a big military industrial complex firm. And Mayhew, or not Mayhew, but um, this guy Thane Eugene Caesar was seen by more by multiple witnesses with his gun drawn um, behind Robert Kennedy. So he, he, if there was somebody who had to be like identified as the suspect who actually would have killed Robert Kennedy, he seems like the most obvious one, but you know, it's not, it's, it's not like something has been proven at this point, but there's a lot of reason and uh, reasons, witness testimony and et cetera, to think that he was and strange connections to Mayhew as well. And personal associates of Mayhew also said that they, uh, that they believed or even knew that he was involved with the Kennedy, the Robert Kennedy assassination. Well, it's, I mean, I think, you know, everybody should take it very seriously when the son of Robert F. Kennedy is coming out now and saying that he thinks, you know, Sirhan Sirhan should be paroled. And he's also saying things, um, according to you, about a lot of different potential national security state assassinations and he's even said things about martin luther king which as you just mentioned martin luther king was assassinated only a few months before robert kennedy was but i I think we should probably move into the martin luther king assassination now in 1958 uh, someone actually tried to assassinate mlk with a knife the doctors told him the knife went so close to severing his aorta that if he had, quote, sneezed, uh, he would have died. 
so the day before he was actually assassinated on April 3rd, 1968, um, in King's last speech, which is commonly referred to as I've been on the mountaintop speech, right? he, he mentioned uh, not only this incident, and there were some famous lines from it, but he also mentioned that a bomb threat was actually made at the event that he was actually at doing his last speech. And I just wanted to quote him here. He says, I too am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation and interstate travel. And then he continues on in his speech to talk about He's directly referencing the bomb threat that was made against the event itself. So it's just fascinating how much Martin Luther King would talk about this kind of stuff, you know, up until the day before he was actually assassinated. And on the next day, on April 4th, you know, the official story says that Martin Luther King was shot with a single bullet and it was pretty much instantly fatal. He went immediately unconscious after he was shot around 6.01 p.m. And... You know, the official story again says that witnesses saw a man named James Earl Ray uh, fleeing from the scene of a so-called flop house across the street from the hotel Martin Luther King was staying at. And the police, you know, tracked down the man's identity, allegedly by finding a package dumped close to this flop house, uh, which coincidentally and very conveniently for the police included a rifle and binoculars that had Ray's or James Earl Ray's fingerprints on it. How did they find Ray in the first place? Apparently, he also bought this gun under an alias. So, what? How did they originally trace him uh, to this, you know, assassination? Well, they don't. They're not able to. The the information that you have that you mentioned is how they figure out. Oh, it's this guy James Earl Ray. But then he he's not caught. He's not caught for a few months. He is able to somehow make it. He makes it all the way to Great Britain, and um, he's using this alias. And it's uh, according to you know Philip Melanson, the academic, and uh, Peter Dell Scott. This is the key to like how he's able to get away for so long. He uses an alias that's um, Eric S. Galt, and this alias happens to be the, the alias of this guy who is built really similarly to Ray. He kind of looks like Ray and Ray had underwent undergone plastic surgery in 1967. And after that, he looked even more like this guy. Wait, wait a second. Um, wait a second. That's, that, that's something I've just, just too bizarre to, to not ask about. So why, is there any explanation for why he underwent plastic surgery? Or was he already trying to pose as like a change his identity like well, previous he, to this incident, yeah, he had a he had a strange um, escape from prison that seems to have been aided, you know, in some way by some by some forces. And then he has he goes and gets plastic surgery, and after this plastic surgery, like it, it does something to his nose and uh, uh, nose and chin, I think, and it it makes him look more like this guy who he's never met, Eric S. Galt. And Eric S. Galt is part of the national security establishment because he does this classified work. He has a high security clearance for uh, Union Carbide in Canada and the U.S. working on proximity fuses. So like sort of for the military industrial complex, you know, or defense firms, but in conjunction with the government. And so he's using this 
um, this name on his like Alabama license, his car registration at a motel in Memphis. And uh, this helps, this triggers the national security state into, you know, like not, you know, putting out all these efforts into trying to catch him because it seems to set them into a panic mode of sorts. This is according to Peter Dale Scott, who's looked into this. Um, and so he's, there's, he couldn't have really chosen this alias himself, but it's never been determined like how this happened. He said that he ha- – Ray's explanation of these things is that he had this handler, a guy named Raul, who, you know, inc- who encouraged him to go here and there and work these jobs and make some money, and that's why he was in Memphis in the first place. And so he's using this name. He makes it all the way to London. So he gets like a, you know, he's able to leave the country, go to London, and then eventually he gets he gets caught there. Um, so the the way that um, Melanson wrote about it was the question arises as to how a sophisticated assassination conspiracy, clever enough to match Ray and Galt, Galt was the alias that he used, kill King and guide Ray through Toronto could be inept enough to allow him to be captured alive in London. Okay, and and, uh, Melanson just said, well, you know, they bungle things in the real world. But Peter Dell Scott's answer was that there wasn't, it wasn't bungling. It was that Ray was meant to be captured, but only at such time as this apparent feat of justice would counter the atrocity of Robert Kennedy's murder. In this way, Ray's capture served to offset the popular anger and frustration which produced such violent days of rioting after the murder of Martin Luther King. So that's Peter's Peter Del Scott's analysis, and you know I, I I can't say that I know enough about the case to really add anything to that. But uh, you know the timing of all of these assassinations and the fact that we are meant to just accept them as these random acts. But not even random acts by people who said, you know, they were swept up in the emotions of the time. These are in both cases, the people are saying they didn't do it for any particular reason. But Sirhan eventually said, yeah, I guess I did it. But then in James Earl Ray's case, he said, he, he said, I didn't do it. You know, I didn't do it. I don't have any reason to do it. We hear all the time about the FBI sending MLK that letter urging him to kill himself. Of course, the widespread surveillance Um, from the FBI and also the CIA on MLK and his personal life. But let's, I mean, but why is this never talked about? The fact that Coretta Scott King, uh, you know, did this civil trial in 1999. And just talk about that and also what evidence is there that James Earl Ray is not the perpetrator? Well, when you say why it's not talked about, I think it, because if to cast doubt on the official version and to raise suspicions of the state being involved, that really cuts to the legitimacy of the state. I mean, ev- even Republican presidents have to pay, um, you know, honor Martin Luther King on Martin right. Luther King. It's Day. like as, as far as they'll go is just to say, oh, yeah, they sent they sent him a letter telling him to kill himself. Right. They'll, they'll write about that in The New York Times. But, you know, and, and that this, and it'll be chalked up as like, oh, the FBI was and their Cold War hysteria, they right. thought everyone was influenced by the communists, you know. Um, but Hoover did similar things, you know, in the way back in like 1919. Uh, Hoover was the guy behind the first Red Scare that, you know, deported Emma Goldman and uh, killed the, destroyed the Wobblies, you know, the international industrial workers of the world. So it didn't take the Cold War to get him to act that way. 
But I, you know, I think that because it's so damning to the establishment to think that they would have killed somebody like this, that they have to, they even, they have to deny it. And if you go to Snopes, which I don't really recommend for any of these controversial things, but there's actually a, a page where somebody put it to Snopes. Um, is it true that a jury found a, a civil trial found that uh, a conspiracy was behind the death of Martin Luther King? And Snopes answers it as mostly false. Um, and the, the huh. reasoning is basically that they don't like the verdict, and so it's mostly false. So, but like, <laughs> but you know, it's here. There, I mean, it's categorically true that that happened. There was a civil trial, and they mustered enough evidence, and they had a guy who was who admitted to being a part of the conspiracy and to taking like a hundred thousand dollars to be a part of it. Um, they had a lot of testimony, and it only took the jury like an hour to say like, yeah, there was a you know there was a conspiracy. Now there were elements of the trial that weren't perfect, but because it was, you know, it wasn't quite as adversarial. But the thing is, they presented a lot of evidence that, you know, that there was military intelligence on the ground in Memphis that couldn't really be explained, that there was police misconduct and the destruction of evidence that uh, James Earl Ray had seemed, you know, that he didn't seem to be having any motive to do it. There were a lot of reasons for them to come back with that verdict. And they just can't, um, you know, they can't admit that that was, that that happened. Now, there's other, there's other evidence that um, has been used to look at the case. Part of it is the ballistics of the rifle, that the rifle had a really badly aligned scope. Judge Joe Brown, who later had a TV show, he was supposed to um, look into reopening the case, and he was really going, he was leaning towards doing that, and had, I think, essentially decided to do that. He just needed to rewrite, he needed to write up, you know, the, the right sort of opinions or, or judgments in order to reopen the case. Because he knew something about firearms, and he had looked at the firearm that they had in question as evidence, and um, found that you know that he couldn't have done that the firearm in question couldn't have done this. The one in evidence couldn't have been used. Um, but when he goes on vacation, um, which is a routine thing for a judge to do, they take a very unusual step of moving the case to another judge, and the judge denies Ray a new trial. Um, and so he was denied another trial because of that. So there's besides the ballistic evidence that, that Joe Brown was persuaded by, you have uh, things that Doug Valentine discovered when he was researching the Phoenix program. He went around and interviewed people who'd been part of uh, the CIA's assassination program in Vietnam, the Phoenix program. And some of them, uh, one of them at least, and I think more than one, it said that they were in Memphis, that they'd been called into Memphis uh, on the days that King was killed, like right around the time that King was killed, they, they were there when King was killed. And um, there's never been an explanation for this. Why are you calling in military intelligence, people with experience in assassination, wow. to Memphis, Tennessee, when Martin Luther King is there? Well, I always found it odd that we were perfectly okay with accepting the fact that the CIA was running an assassination program all around the world and involved in all of these overt you know, activities overthrowing, usurping the democratic processes of countless countries, yet it was completely um, out of the question to entertain that notion was happening within our own nation. Yeah, that's the heart of it right there, um, I think, that if what kind of threat was Salvador Allende to the United States mm -hmm. and he ended up dead? Okay, who's, who's more threatening, Salvador Allende or the Kennedy brothers, you know, who want to 
who want to end the Cold War. Or Martin Luther I mean, King trying... said to be the most dangerous Negro in the nation, you know? Right. And who is, who is trying to mobilize a movement to call specifically for doing two things that they are very opposed to, ending the, the very lucrative war in Vietnam and spending money on social programs in the United States, which have, since, that, since that time period have been cut drastically as a percentage of GNP. Um, we've moved in the opposite direction. I think in part as a response to the, uh, to the 1960s, really, and the political activism of that day. We've, our, both, pol- both parties are now firmly uh, corporate, pro-war, um, and I think that things have been managed in such a particular way as to make America less democratic since that time period, so that, you know, it seems uh, that politicians like Kennedy and uh, leaders like King, they don't have the influence that they, that they once had. Why do you think people aren't willing to entertain that more? Is it just the ethnocentrism, um, nationalism, jingoism? What is it? I think it's for most people. Well, a lot of people, I mean, you say like when you have only 11% of, of the public believing in the Warren Commission in 1976, a lot of people have entertained it. And we know the elites did. It's just that in the media, the core the, there's been such unanimity and in the mm-hmm. public statements of officials they've been afraid to confront it not always there were some like a Sh- schweiker this senator from pennsylvania he came to basically the same conclusion as oliver stone as far as who was guilty of it and he was a republican he was almost going to be ronald reagan's vice president wow. um so people have spoken out about these things and tried to investigate them but they run into uh you know they run into massive resistance and um you know, the, the sheer amount of propaganda that you see, you see it in little bursts now where the, the, all the reporting on, say, Venezuela just comes out. And if you follow the case, you know, the, if you follow the, hist- the recent history and even the current events, like, you know that they're lying about these things. And yet they can present such a united front that it's really more effective than a, having a state-run propaganda agency would be. It's it, it, the way that the corporate media can all sing from the same, you know, hymn book on these issues is, uh, I, I think, allows them an enormous amount of control over the, the, the discourse. And even websites like you mentioned, Snopes, and let's talk about Wikipedia really quickly. I mean, you go to yeah. Wikipedia, whether it be Project Censored, Peter Joseph, or me, you have an immediate kind of redefinition of who we are as lunatic fringe conspiracy theorists because we've dared to question these very things. And that's really interesting because people go to these websites for this kind of unbiased arbitration of, you know, like who are these people? And they just want like a snapshot, but these are also controlled. The freedom that was promised by the internet has, I mean, it's been folded back into uh, the sort of dominant narratives in a, in, in a lot of ways. It's Google, Facebook, Wikipedia, you know. Um, I mean, the, they're useful for things that are not controversial. You can find reliable information on uncontroversial topics. But for things that are controversial, you get the sort of the narrative that you're most likely to get if you don't know where to look is the dominant narrative of the, uh, you know, the power structure and their sort of version of the world that they want everyone to, uh, to believe in. It's just so gross that these are conflated with, you know, completely absurd conspiracy theories like Pizzagate, um, where now you hear kind of, you know, 
truther is now equated to just being someone who is a, a flat earther or something. Oh, right. Yeah, truth, the word truth has been, has been sort of bastardized in a way. Like it now is associated with its opposite. It's really Orwellian uh, to the extreme. But even, I mean, the, the Lance, you guys have read Lance's book, Lance David Smith's book, Conspiracy Theory in America. And he writes a lot about the, the nonsensical way the word conspiracy theory is used. Yes. And I would just point out now that if you look at the U.S. since World War II, you know, our entire national security posture has been, you know, uh, organized around conspiracy theories. First, the global communist conspiracy, mm. which they would literally, I mean, they use that word, the global communist conspiracy, for a long time. And um, they use it less once conspiracy theory becomes associated with the Kennedy assassination. Then you don't hear it as much, but it still is a conspiracy theory. And then there's the conspiracy theory, you know, the global war on terror, that we basically need to uh, allow the, the state to have enormous power of surveillance and, uh, you know, to kill people all over the globe, wherever they need, wherever it, that needs to be done uh, because of the terrorist conspiracy. And then now it's, uh, you know, it's Russia. The, Ru the Russians are conspiring constantly, only because the word conspiracy has been, you know, discredited because they want to discourage people from thinking of state crimes, it doesn't even get called a conspiracy. They, they'll use the word, uh, you know, collusion or something. Now they're even uh, trying they to say that the conspiracy theories in and of themselves are being planted by Russia to divide, <laughs> right. to divide our country. They even called the Venezuela coup a Russian talking point. I mean, that's where right. we're at. Right. Well, let's get back just a little bit into some of the details about the MLK assassination and what actually caused this civil trial, um, Coretta Scott King versus Lloyd Jowers. Who is Lloyd Jowers, the owner of this so-called flop house that was across the street from the hotel MLK was assassinated in? Why is there a reason to believe Lloyd Jowers was actually credible about what he had to say about his role in the MLK assassination? Well, he was dying of cancer, and he came, he approached, um, maybe it was William Pepper or the King family, and his story came, they, they did stories on like 2020 about it. He was really a low-level, a low you know, organized crime figure who ran this flop house and uh, this little diner in Memphis, and, uh, you know, was not... He wasn't a, a reputable figure because, you know, people who'd be in assassination plots might not be. Um, it, but he had no reason really to lie. They've tried to say he was doing this for financial gain, but I, I've never really found that to be too persuasive. But of course, they're going to try to say something like that. But he was dying. He didn't live much past the trial. In fact, he might have been dead by the end of it. But if he, if he wasn't, he didn't, he, he didn't live much past it. And... Um, he was there, and he what he what his story was that he was was that he was given a hundred thousand dollars to participate in this crime, and that he took a gun from someone who had actually shot MLK, and uh, helped to frame uh, helped to frame James Earl Ray, and that Ray had been staying in his in, his, in the flop house that he that he ran. So he the he the King family believed him. He was a, a witness at that trial. 
and oh, and the defendant as well. He was the one that they actually sue in the trial. The King family sues Jowers because that's the way they're able to get their day in court. Yeah. And he knows this, and he's he's fine with it because he wants to bring these facts, you know, to light. I think as he's dying, and you know, he over decades it becomes clear the historical significance of this, and he he wants to you know do something about it. And they originally sued him for ten million dollars, but almost more of it was like a symbolic thing, and they ended up when they won only making him pay something like a hundred dollars. Right. Because right. I think that, that, that sounds right. Because William Pepper said this wasn't about the money. This is about the, um, you know, the disclosures. Right, and, and Pepper was not, Pepper, who was the lawyer for uh, James Earl Ray, and he's also Sirhan Sirhan's lawyer now, he was a guy who was really active in, you know, peace movements and such, and he knew Martin Luther King. He's actually the person who you could probably say turned Martin Luther King against the war in Vietnam. He showed him an early version of this story that he'd written, that he was writing for Ramparts magazine, which was a great magazine in the sixties that really that dealt with the issues we're talking about now. And there's no magazine like it today. Um, and he showed him these, these pictures of the people that he had seen in Vietnam and they brought, um, they brought King to tears really. And he, he said after that, that he couldn't continue to support the war anymore. Um, and so, you know, he he turned against the war one year to the day before he um, got assassinated. And since that trial, I mean, what's interesting about that trial is we're we're talking a little bit about how mainstream media and this unanimity of, of media has essentially conditioned people into believing that these are crazy conspiracy theories to believe that the national security state actually was behind the assassinations of these figures, but. Interestingly, ABC News Bryant Gumbel actually gave Coretta Scott King an, you know an interview after the trial and it was sort of a fair piece. I mean the piece for the most part was not really doubting a lot of the th- stuff that came out in the trial but th- these stories just sort of disappear, you know, once they come out in mainstream media. Um like this thing about Robert Mayhew that you were just talking about having to do with potentially being behind RFK's assassination was in the Washington Post. And then it's just right. sort of barely talked about after that. So it's interesting that it does eke through into the mainstream media sometimes, but it still doesn't really matter because Coretta Scott King and other surviving King family members, including Dexter King, tried to lobby then-President Bill Clinton after the civil trial concluded uh, to reopen the investigation and have a new legal trial, but they were ignored or turned down do you, do you know exactly what transpired there? Like if they actually were even able to get a m- message to Bill Clinton? Yeah, when when Bill Clinton was approached by, it may have been Coretta personally who did it, and he says something to the effect of, we'll look into it. This is how I remember it anyway. And that he says something to the effect of, we'll look into it, and then there's never any action or in- further inquiry from the Clinton Justice Department. And I mean, nobody there could have possibly had anything to do with it personally. So... I mean, the reasons for them not wanting to go back into it is is purely to protect the institution. Same reason you know? Obama didn't want to prosecute or investigate, rather even war crimes, torture. It's like they're just all, it's just an unraveling thread of complicity. Right. And where do you, where do you go with that? <laughs> yeah. um, but there's, they've, they've made an effort recently. Um, we didn't talk about this, so I might, I should mention it that, you know, just a few months ago, a couple of months, they, there's a 
petition released or a statement released by a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, and it was signed by a lot of people, including um, well, academics, Hollywood types, um, and you know, different researchers that have uh, looked into the case. Some of the more interesting ones are um, this guy named Blakey, G. Robert Blakey. He was the head of the second investigation into the Kennedy assassination. And uh, he, in the past, he, they had arrived at the conclusion that it was actually a conspiracy to kill uh, the president and that it was carried out by people he didn't know who, but perhaps mafia and anti-Castro Cubans. Well, he's now signed on to this statement that's a joint statement on the Kennedy King uh, and Malcolm X assassinations. That's both of the Kennedy assassinations, um, calling for, you know, uh, the, calling on the new Democratic Congress to look into these cases um, and attempt to have an investigation and a public discussion of, you know, all of the evidence that's been turned up over the years and to attempt to, like, look at their effect on American democracy and America's history. Um, it was signed by Daniel Ellsberg as well, Oliver Stone, Alec Baldwin, um, Peter Dale Scott, Mark Crispin Miller, um, a whole lot of people. And one of the doctors, Robert McClellan, who saw Kennedy in the uh, emergency room at Dallas, you know, and described wounds that couldn't have been consistent with Oswald as a shooter. So there's a, you can find it at um, americantruthnow.org. They have the, they have the statement up and that was written about in the Washington Post too. So it's strange that the Post picks it up. But as you say, once these things get reported, if the other news sites don't pick up on them, if the nightly news doesn't pick up on them, the, uh, the New York Times doesn't do a story, the other newspapers don't, then like they, you know, they just sort of disappear. Um, and that, you know, I, I hope that's not what happens with this effort, but at least you see that people are, are still out there trying to get, um, you know, get, get the powers that be to somehow, you know, confront our history because we're, it, it, it haunts us, I think, to this day. Yeah. And according to Wikipedia, the Justice Department also did their own sort of investigation of, the civil trial, Coretta Scott King versus Lloyd Jowers, and they rejected it because they said there was a lack of evidence. <laughs> Do you know anything right. about that and who was in charge of that, that actual, the government taking the baton and, and then just throwing it out? Like right. That? I, it would have been the, the Clinton Justice Department, but, you know, to get back to where we started, with, if it's what that amounts to really is, uh, you know, the accusation that there has been a state crime, you know, a state crime against democracy in this case. It's a state crime, and then the state has investigated and found itself to be innocent. I mean, that's essentially <laughs> how it happened. Investigation concluded. Right, and that is, it, it seems to be a catch, you know, it, it's a catch-22. It's a, something, I don't know if without a big public movement for it or without some sort of shift among some elites, you know, that our current system is failing and we, and that maybe one way to reorient our political, you know, the, glo the, the political consciousness of the nation would be to go back and look at these things. It's difficult to see how they're going to be adjudicated, um, it, which is to say that it's up to people who, you know, concer are concerned about the truth, maybe for just the sake of the truth, to, uh, you know, keep, keep talking about these things because 
it, it, I personally think that we face a number of crises like our, the corruption of our political system, this empire that can't really continue to work the way that it has. Um, the, the, the nuclear issue and the, the global warming issue, which threaten both of those threaten, you know, human civilization that, you know, a, a move in a progressive direction would actually be beneficial for even our elites. And it, would they come to realize that they have to delegitimize the prevailing order before any sort of, you know, change could be made that is necessary for like all humans, you know, I, I, maybe that is a way that we would start to look at these kind of crimes and, and look at our history and see where we weren't wrong and, uh, you know, try to come up with some way to address these things. Well, one of the disturbing things that comes to mind for me about getting some kind of truth and reconciliation about any of these events is that it seems like there's always a new event. We didn't even get any truth and reconciliation really about RFK, JFK, or MLK by the time 9-11 happened. And, you know, how many years is it going to be before we have truth and reconciliation about that, which is, you know, one of the most ultimate examples of a state crime against democracy. But just so people out there, people who are still skeptical, who think, oh, maybe, you know, this is so fringe, or, you know, or, or of course the family would, you know, not believe this, uh, and they're biased, or, like, I don't know what logic people would use to write off a lot of the things we've talked about today, but can you go into any other high-profile politicians or other famous people, celebrities, any famous public figures who also agree that James Earl Ray was not MLK's assassin? I know you already mentioned Daniel Ellsberg and even you know actors like Alec Baldwin, who's kind of surprising to me because he's such a seems like such a generic neoliberal. But you know, or who who out there who would maybe surprise people has actually gone out there and suggested the U.S. government assassinated people like MLK or JFK or even RFK? Well, I, there were two, there's the two family, there's, you said the family members are like maybe not going to be as persuasive to people. There were, besides Robert Kennedy Jr., you have Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, who is uh, also the, he's the daughter of Robert Kennedy. Um, you have Cyril Wecht, who runs this I think it's Duquesne University. There's like the Cyril Wecht Center for Forensics. He's like maybe America's most um, illustrious forensic pathologist. And he's done all this work on the Kennedy assassinations, but also he's looked at, well, the Kennedy assassinations, both of them. And he has signed onto this statement. Um, you have John Newman, who is, um, you know, a, a former army intelligence officer who's a prof history professor now at James Madison University. Um, you have Kennedy's own doctor, Kennedy, John Kennedy's doctor, um, whose name was Berkeley. He's the guy that wrote the death certificate. And he tried to contact Congress when they were reinvestigating it in the 70s. And he said, nobody ever interviewed me. I have information uh, to the effect that Kennedy couldn't have been killed by Oswald. And I'd like to testify. They never, they never follow up on it. They're not, they weren't interested. <laughs> so he was, like, he was Kennedy's personal doctor saw him in the, uh, you know, as he was dying in Dallas, and was probably already dead, really. And they, they just, they didn't want to, they didn't want to hear it. Um, you know, Charles de Gaulle, the leader of France, never believed this. Charles de Gaulle was almost killed in a very similar event. He was driving his Citroen, or he was being driven around, and he drives into this crossfire. And they shoot up his car. He's able to get away barely. Well, it turns out it was his own intelligence service that had, um, that had done it. These, the group called the OAS that had formed this fringe right-wing 
uh, you know, terror or, uh, you know, terrorist group they'd become or that uh, and they wanted to kill de Gaulle because they didn't, they weren't in favor of his policies, you know, decolonizing in Africa, Algeria. And so they tried to kill him. Um, de Gaulle found evidence that the CIA was involved in this. Uh, and this was reported in France. So he calls Kennedy and asks him, you know, was the CIA, were you guys trying to kill me? And Kennedy says, well, you know, I wasn't trying to kill you, but I don't really have control of my intelligence agencies. So, um, <laughs> He's like, I don't, we can't be sure. And maybe, maybe they tried to kill exactly. And Kennedy himself, Kennedy himself, if you've ever seen the movie Seven Days in May, it's like this old movie that came out around the time of the Kennedy assassination. Um, it's about a bunch of right-wing generals, and they're afraid that the, that the president is going to uh, negotiate a peace treaty with the Soviet Union. And so they plot to overthrow him. They plot to overthrow the president. And Kennedy read the book and he said, you know what, that could happen here. After things like the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs, if you kept doing things like that, they could actually do it. And so he arranged for the people filming that movie to be able to shoot it at the White House when he was out of town. So wow. they filmed scenes like out in front of the White House. Uh, you know, so Kennedy himself believed that it, it was quite possible that an assassination or a coup, an overthrow of the president could take place by these cold warriors, these fanatics. And um, in, the, in the newspapers, a couple, like maybe August of 1963, there's a highly placed source who isn't named, but it disappears in the New York Times even. And this official said, if there's ever a seven days in May, it'll come from the CIA, not the Pentagon. And it's, and it's talking about how unaccountable the CIA is. And it, it says, you know, in like August of 1963, that, you know, if, they, if the government, if there's ever a government overthrow, it's from the CIA and they're totally out of control. The president can't control them in Vietnam and elsewhere. So there's, you know, there's reasons that to believe that Kennedy even thought that, that this was a possibility. That's fascinating. Aaron, I always think back on this era as just completely horrifying. You know, like you were talking about, MLK was about to enlist on a poor people's march, potentially shutting down Washington, D.C. in an Occupy-style encampment, um, demanding, you know, rights for poor people and a fair living wage. And, I mean, it could have just exploded into something completely monumental and linking imperialism to militarism to the domestic failures of the U.S. empire. And here we are 50 years later where even Bernie Sanders can't muster the courage to actually link these things together. And um, it just seems like we've just lost so much since then. And just these assassinations, this wave of horror and violence and trauma, what did that do to the psyche of activism? And just, you know, just, just comment on that if you can. Well, the, the folk singer Phil Oaks who had been sort of optimistic at this time, uh, when Bobby Kennedy dies, it sends him into like this great depression that he never, he never recovers from. You can find documentaries of him uh, on YouTube and such. So for a lot of people, I think it really crushed them. If there's a great movie that you can get on YouTube, they posted, it's called King in the Wilderness, and it talks about the last years of King's life. And it, the, one of the people who was really close to King, who actually was one of the people pursuing a reinvestigation of his death. His name was, I, I believe it was Andrew Young, and he was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under Jimmy Carter. And they interview him in this documentary talking about King's assassination. 
And he says, you know, once he was assassinated, that was it. That was it for the movement. Mm -hmm. Like they could never reorganize around anyone. And uh, yeah, his name was Andrew Young. And um, what I think this shows, and, and with the Kennedys as well, is that these leaders matter. Like these, these movements, like the idea that Occupy was going to like have some sort of generic spirit of the group and no hierarchy, uh, you know, that just, I don't know that that has ever worked anywhere. Uh, these leaders who are capable and charismatic and able to rally people and, and, and mobilize people and motivate them to, to action, these are rare. And that's why we that's why we get rid of them in other countries. That's why, you know, that's why they chased Che Guevara down in Bolivia. And, uh, you know, uh, Felix Rodriguez of Iran-Contra fame still wears his wristwatch, you know, because these guys are charismatic. They can't be allowed to exist as symbols in other countries. Um, like we can't have allow this to spread among, you know, the subject peoples. And so these leaders are really important and being robbed of the best leaders of the 60s, which is what happens. I, I think that they, we've never really recovered from that. And um, that was a moment that was where there were a lot of social forces that could have moved things very differently. And that's why you had all these assassinations that, you know, I don't I can't think of any empire that has allowed its, you know, its power to evaporate without a fight even like the the british is the closest example the british empire but they get sort of folded in and become the junior partners of mm -hmm. the american empire and even when they go out they still go out in kind of a pathetic way in the suez crisis where they try to start this war in egypt you know to retake the suez canal and the U.S. doesn't back them because they don't want to, you know, look so bad for the rest of the third world. And so then the, the British pound collapses. The British empire basically collapses at that point. So people point to the British example as like, well, you can give up the empire. But they really – they didn't. They kind of got folded into the American establishment as junior partners. And even then they went out badly. So for the U.S. to peacefully give up this empire, it would be kind of a, something historically unprecedented in uh, in the history of uh, you know human civilizations, I, I can't think of any empire or or dynasty that ever went that ever was confronted with like the moral arguments of its illegitimacy and took stock of those arguments and said, oh, you know that's true. Let's become you know some sort of like just and equitable yeah. society. Well, I, I love what you just said about you know leaders do matter. And leaders do play a very important role in history. Um, Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez, and Donald Trump, frankly. I mean, you can look at the contrary to be true as well, where these charismatic leaders do foster um, a certain movement that's cultivated that I don't know if other people would have done so. Like, I've had arguments with people about how, oh, the exact same thing would be happening right now under President Ted Cruz. And I just totally disagree. I think that Trump's generating something very frightening um, as an individual. Um, and, you know, you're totally right about these individuals who were taken out that really represented something that could not be replaced. And let's talk really quickly to close this out about how the deep state has morphed, how the CIA has morphed, how, you know, there are no, you know, overt assassination programs going on. It's more kind of in the form of these non-governmental bodies, organizations like the NED, USAID. And that's when I hear someone like Bernie Sanders, again, to bring him up at the town hall, 
saying, I oppose military intervention in Venezuela, that doesn't necessarily mean much because we're not talking about, you know, like military incursions like we were during the Bay of Pigs. We're talking about like the CIA doing other insidious things on the ground for decades, working with these non-governmental groups to foment regime change. Can you comment on how just the evolution and the morphing of the deep state apparatus and where it is today with the U.S. empire? Right. Well, you know, this the the heyday of the CIA overthrowing countries with these these coups that sort of become legendary. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, the last one was um, was Chile. They come under scrutiny after that. And even though there's some examples of this, like, um, you know, in um, in Haiti uh, in 2004, um when when Aristide is kidnapped, and that seems to be more orchestrated pretty clearly by U.S. intelligence, they have different ways of operating. This this kind of starts in the 70s. A good example is, and it's pretty obscure, but uh, the case of Jamaica, where they try to destabilize the country to keep Michael Manley, a socialist, from being reelected, and he wanted to nationalize all of their aluminum mines. It's like bauxite, where that you get aluminum from. And this is, of course, nationalizing resources is like the number one thing that, that pisses off the CIA and the national security state. So they try to, they try to sabotage his election chances, but the, with this terror campaign, the Venezuelan people stand by him. But because of these other factors like falling, um, falling sugar prices, rising oil prices, which the U.S. You know, and the Saudis were, you know, may have, there's a lot of evidence to believe they coordinated that together, for, not, not for Jamaica, but for just general purposes. But anyway, these, for all these reasons, they run into these economic problems. And so they need a loan just to be able to keep their economy from completely crashing. They have to go to the IMF. And the IMF tells them, well, you're going to have to uh, you know, reprivatize your, your aluminum mines if you want a loan. So you have these other structures in place like the global financial structure that keeps the third world more in line and limits their, their ability to do much of anything. And you also have recent things in, in Latin America, like in Brazil, where you just bribe enough of the politicians to get them to carry out like these legal coups where they throw Dilma in jail, really on very spurious charges, and Lula's in, Brazil, in jail in Brazil. And they did this in, I think, Paraguay as well. Um, you basically had the rollback of that, that movement led by Chavez, the pink tide, as they call it in Latin America. And Venezuela and Nicaragua are the two holdouts, and, and Bolton is, you know, talking about how he's got they're gonna we're gonna overthrow both of those governments, um, and so you know it'll be time will tell whether that happens. But the 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 way that they that they handle things is often through manipulating democracy and democratic processes to give them some little fig leaf of legitimacy, um, and if they can't win it, I mean, what they did in Venezuela, where the, they demanded that they not run a candidate against yeah. Maduro just to make sure even though they, they, he may have lost he, he he there's you know he wasn't especially popular he could have lost but their plan they couldn't have accepted him winning an a, 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 an election that was not controversial so they just say don't run and that way they can delegitimize the election that way and you can get the press to report on that you know so the the control of the media is is very much more uniform now than it was back then, I think. And the you have these civil society groups like USAID. I mean, people knew the USAID was CIA for a long time. They changed their name to USAID. They used to just be AID 
they changed, they put the U S in front of it because the old one was tainted by its association with the CIA. And so they rebrand it. And somehow now when they talk about USAID on the news, they don't mention that it's notorious for being a CIA front. They just say, Oh, they won't accept our aid. Who, who's against yeah, aid? Who would, who would do that? Uh, what a horrible tyrant. Well, I mean, just in Cuba alone, USAID created a fake Twitter service <laughs> called Zunzunio. They tried to infiltrate the Cuban hip hop community and they created a fake HIV program, and that's just what we know about in, like, the last couple of years in Cuba. I mean, what is your response to people, and I've heard Jank Uger say this, that the CIA does not do that anymore? Or that the deep state doesn't exist because it's there's too much of a bureaucracy now. Everything's too much of a stifled bureaucracy that just locks everything up. Right. Well, you have, I mean, the... Without trying to like identify the responsibility and consign it to one particular agency or department of the government, just look at the unchanging things that the government sort of unanimously works toward works towards in the United States, no matter which president it is. I mean, Obama himself declared that Venezuela was a national security threat, an emergency. If you <laughs> want to laugh at Trump's wall, I don't really see how that's – if you can make the case for Venezuela being an emergency – you can make the case that anything is an emergency, um, and which is what Obama did. Like, why do what what institutions keep these policies from ever changing and from being so universally kind of, I mean, exploitative, imperialist? Um, you know, there's there's some set of institutions that's keeping us from being democratic, or you know, honest about or, or openly discussing what these objectives are. And it doesn't seem to matter much from administration to administration. Um, and so that you have to account for the undemocratic character with the small d democratic, undemocratic character of U.S. imperialism, you know, across administrations. So, you know, the deep state is an attempt to to do that. If if it's not a perfect attempt, you know, there's other you could say the establishment, you could say, you know, um, you know, the rulers of the world, whatever you wanted to say, but like the the sort of the class interests that are institutionalized, uh, you know, across administrations and are immune to democratic checks and balances, that's, that's something of a deep state. Yeah, even just that Elizabeth Warren has been completely humiliated by Trump over and over again. Like, they should be mortal enemies, and instead she's just completely running cover for the coup. <laughs> it's just surreal to see. I mean, this is Trump right. we're talking about. How does anyone buy into this? Yeah, I, the, this would seem like the perfect time for the Democrats to educate the public and actually take some kind of stands. But I think that they know who, who they know who funds their campaigns. They know mm. the class, and they know that U.S. foreign policy is the embodiment of of class interest in the United States. And so they have to. The very few of them are able to say very much about it. Yeah, and it's like when the opportunity arises, they all just need to line up. Um, even if it is under Trump. Right. I mean, even if you want to criticize it, if you look at Tulsi Gabbard, who, you know, for all her flaws and odd things about her, will will say that these these interventions are really bad. But she will accept, like when she was on The View recently, she accepts that we're in, that we're trying to do good out there, that, they're, right. that there's good motives, that they just, they don't go well, and so we shouldn't do them because they end up badly. Whereas, I, you know, I think the the public is, the public would understand more if you said like this is the reason that we can't, we practice these policies, and this is why it's bad, 
you know, I think that they, the public is ready to understand that their leaders are lying to them all the time. I think they, they kind of instinctively believe that. That's why yeah. they, so few of them vote, and that's why Congress has 9% approval rating, etc. But they're afraid. I mean, even somebody, even, um, you know, somebody like who's on the radical side of the, of the non-radical establishment, like Tulsi, is, uh, you know, won't, Tulsi Gabbard won't say, won't honestly characterize these policies. Well, it's, it's interesting because they, a lot of it's framed even by these people who go against interventions. It, it's still America is acting in good faith. The argument's not framed as America is acting in bad faith, mm-hmm. which you would think at this point would be an okay, non-risky position to take because look at what Trump – And look you know, at Trump, Bolton. I mean – Well, Trump has risen to power. Trump has risen to power <laughs> by using the rhetoric that America doesn't act in good faith. You know, like right. he, he's he's actually like – made quite a convincing case to his own base. So it's surprised me that people like Tulsi Gabbard or even Bernie Sanders or even Alexandra or Quasio-Cortez would still frame things as in the U.S. government is really does mean to do well, but it just messes things up and we should, probably shouldn't do it because, you know, when we touch these things, they they go badly. But Trump somehow doesn't, he doesn't have to frame things that way. So I find that, I just it's really disappointing. Frankly. And they're still unwilling to link imperialism with, domestic issues which i find yeah just bizarre frankly yeah well yeah, totally. you know Bern, sanders has actually made some little baby ish motions in that way there's actually something he posted recently about saying like into the empire which is not something i'd heard him say before this was just in the last day or so wait he so said I, end the empire there's something to that effect this just happened like yesterday or today and um it, it's you know, it's strange, I, but it's like it, his critique of it. There was something written just recently by that guy, Bein, Peter Beinhart, where he's talking about American foreign policy. And he's saying that this time the difference with Sanders compared to last time is that he's actually talking about foreign policy and they, not just domestic policy. Mm. Now, I, I'm with you as far as being skeptical about the things that he, that he has said, but um, it, it, there are there are rumbling there's just on the nation magazine they say like can this is the cover story i don't know if you saw it or not but about says, the blob like take on the blob david mm-hmm. keloin yeah and they i mean they interview matt duss who you know in the past was a great neocon critic he's done some great research but and then he's recently been posting articles which i would argue are sort of the cia left socialist narrative right. on on venezuela you have to hate maduro and Venezuelan imperialism to be like a proper anti-inventionist. It's just this weird rhetoric that, you know, tries to draw a false equivalency between the American empire <laughs> and other countries' so-called empires, which is a joke. Yeah, if the you Venezuelan really, imperialism. You know, that's a thing. Think about it. But, you know, hopefully, <laughs> yeah. I mean, more people will be pushing Bernie Sanders to the left on foreign policy. I hope that he says more things about it. But as we already see, because he said that he wouldn't say Maduro was a dictator on the CNN town hall, and they all came down on him you know, within 24 hours saying, oh, he's apologizing for a socialist dictator. <laughs> Look at commie Bernie. Yeah, they're already smearing him over that, but. Yeah. Well, the article, the article on, there's, the article is on the, on the Week magazine, like, you know, the, the magazine, theweek.com. And the title is How Bernie Sanders Would Dismantle the American Empire. And so Bernie posts this on social media saying, make no mistake about it. The military industrial complex has unbelievable power and wants to maintain the status quo. I'm running because we need a foreign policy which focuses on democracy, human rights, diplomacy, and world peace. The United States must lead the world in improving international cooperation in the fight against climate change, militarism, authoritarianism, and global wealth inequality. 
So a, a still rather weak assessment of what the empire is, but you know. yeah, with what Abby just said, you know, a lot of the way the CIA does things these days are through this facade of human rights. So it right. really does play into that narrative. Things like the NED or USAID are actually helping people. At this point, you can't draw a distinction between if you're just saying we don't want the U.S. military to intervene. That's yeah, not enough because right. that's not traditionally how we. I mean, look how we intervened in Iran. We didn't send in U.S. military. We we worked with the MEK and Mossad to assassinate nuclear scientists and plant right. computer viruses. So, um, so yeah. I mean, it's there's a lot there's a lot more progress to be made in that area. Hopefully, maybe even in the future history will prove a lot of the things and you know that we've been talking about today correct and there will be a politician who will speak out against state crimes against democracy at some point you know sitting in office because it seems like there used to be people like that we've been conditioned now to think those things are crazy so maybe there'll be a turning point again well they'll, it'll be safe or other leaders will call us out like yeah. Hugo Chavez did about state crimes against yeah. democracy exactly yeah yeah well, the Congressman Allard Lowenstein was a friend of Robert Kennedy, and he said uh, about the assassination, he, he wrote, Robert Kennedy's death, like the president's, was mourned as an extension of the evils of senseless violence. Events moved on, and the profound alterations that these deaths brought in the equation of power in America was perceived as random. What is odd is not that some people thought it was all random, but that so many intelligent people refused to believe that it might be anything else. Nothing can measure more graphically how limited the general understanding of what is possible in America. Wow. That's a really great quote, and I, I feel like we should probably end it there before I go off on another cynical <laughs> tangent to make all the politicians look like terrible, uh, terrible forces to stop imperialism. What are the best resources that you can recommend to our audience that don't go into the um, bullshit conspiracy rabbit holes about these issues, Aaron? Well, uh, you know, Peter Dale, Peter Dale Scott has a really a, a kind of dense work, but one that's really interesting as, as a look at American society and the, the way that the, the way that crime and the organized crime is interwoven into the establishment. That's deep politics and the death of JFK. If you're interested in the in Robert Kennedy and his response to his brother's assassination, David Talbot's book Brothers is really good and really readable. Um, he also wrote a book called The Devil's Chessboard about Alan Dulles. And uh, his his career and his his uh, involvement in the Kennedy assassination and that's a, a really fascinating book. Uh, Lisa Pisa's book on the um, on Robert Kennedy's assassination called a, a Lie Too Big to Fail is out this year and it's really exhaustive if you're interested in that uh, case. Um, Jim DiEugenio writes a lot about. Um, he's written books on the Kennedy assassination. Oliver Stone's written forwards for his book. Uh, you know, if, if anybody hasn't seen the movie JFK, it really holds up well, I think. And uh, as much as it got attacked by the media, the central element, it, it explains the details of the case really well in a, in a way that um, is accessible to people that aren't, you know, experts on it. So I think that's a really good one for sure as well. And I just wanted to add to that, the movie JFK by Oliver Stone, there's a director's cut that has something like almost an hour of extra additional material, including like full, you know, B-plots involving Oswald that are really fascinating. And also Oliver Stone's film Nixon, 
which has sort of a spiritual, you know, linkage to the film JFK. It's it's got a lot of similar elements involving, you know, what Oliver Stone when he was talking about the deep state, he would refer to it sort of as the beast. Right. That that sort of that theme from JFK carries over into the film Nixon very nicely. So I see sort of those films as like they're important companion pieces that people should definitely uh, check out. Yeah, and you know, you've read uh, Lance DeHaven Smith's book, Conspiracy Theory in America, really examines how that term has been sort of uh, ter- used as propaganda against you know people who want to understand uh, the truth about the state crimes. Exactly. And for general U.S. history, like Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States, the miniseries, which was you know the historical part of it was done by Peter Kuznick and uh, the, the history professor at American University. And that's like 12 hours long, and if you know, it, it beats probably the vast majority of um, high school and history college courses that you can take. So, uh, I really recommend that. And where can people find um, your work, Aaron? Uh, any published work or things that you have contributed to that people can check out right now? Yeah, I have. If you have um, institutional access, you can read American Exception, Hegemony, and the Dissimulation of the State. That's in Administration and Society, um, a journal of public administration. I'm working on my dissertation now, which is an expansion of American Exception. Um, And I'm hoping to be able to, uh, after that, work with Peter Dale Scott on editing an anthology and contributing to an anthology of his essays. Um, so, uh, but that my dissertation has to be finished first. So the article that's at administration and society is the only thing I've had published yet, but there's more in the works. I mean, Lance said it's his, he thinks it's the best article on explaining U S foreign policy that he's read. So, you know, I was really happy to get that praise from him and it just deals with the state and its transformation after World War II as we became a global empire. So, Amazing. Thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us and for your incredible insight and knowledge and great conversation. Yeah, well, thanks for all that you guys do. I really, uh, I listen to you guys a lot, and uh, I, I really am happy to be on here talking about this stuff with you. Thanks so much, Aaron. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Aaron. It was a great conversation. If you enjoyed this week's episode, or you have been listening to Media Roots Radio, and haven't yet considered supporting us on Patreon, please consider doing so at patreon.com slash mediarootsradio. You can donate as little as $1 per episode. Thank you very much.